know, this conversation is not just happening in our community. It's not just happening in New York. It is happening all over the country. And that we, we do need to, you know, extend it and be able to have that bilateral conversation, like you were saying, because there is a little bit um, of a sense that you are not allowed to discuss hard topics that involve mental health or drug addiction or crime in a rational way or in a reasonable way because of some uh, political pressure or, you know, whether or not it's considered on vogue. It's an incredible honor to serve our community in such a unique way. As we listen and research, as we visit with people representing every type of background you can imagine, as we take in stories, stories of triumph or despair, as we all ride these incredible times together, we recognize that at the end of the day, those committed to doing good want to be able to have honest and balanced conversations that offer real solutions for all. Here's where we come together to do just that. Welcome to The Balanced Voice. I'm your host, Rania Mancarios. Special thanks to our podcast sponsors, Brigitte and Bashar Kalai, Hallie Vanderheider, and Sippy and AJ Karana. Thank you for joining us. Today, I sat down with Dr. Megan Martin, a mom of two, a master's in public health and a physician. She is also a member of the Upper West Siders for Safer Streets out of the Upper West Side of New York and a president of the West Side Community Organization. What is so fascinating about Dr. Martin is she is part of 15,400 other New Yorkers who are demanding public safety for their neighborhoods. We're going to jump in here, everything they're doing and why what they're talking about matters here. Let's jump in. Dr. Market Martin, welcome. Thanks for having me. I have been following you and the work that you've been doing for weeks now and felt it was really, really important to have you as a guest on The Balanced Voice. One, because our organization is a community-driven public safety nonprofit. We look at safety issues all the time and try to create solutions. And what's happening on the Upper West Side, what's happening in New York City as a whole, has been something that's really, really interesting to me. So First of all, thank you for everything you're doing. And I want to say that you are an absolute example of power, the power of community when it gets behind something and you're moving the needle greatly in, in Manhattan. So can you take us back to the early beginnings? Explain the problem in the Upper West Side that got you to sort of activate and start working towards solutions. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I have been living on the Upper West Side for seven years. I'm a lifelong New Yorker. My parents were born in Brooklyn. My grandparents came to Brooklyn from Eastern Europe. So we feel very connected to New York. And um, I've always felt extremely safe living in New York. I, my husband and I have dedicated our lives to grow, uh, raising our children in New York City. And we have seen um, really over the past maybe year or two years, a change in the community that um, you know, some crime that is happening where cell phones have been stolen, um, uh, where there were actually a, a pretty significant incident on a playground where there was gunshots fired during um, right after school and at a local public school. It alarmed the community so much that another Facebook group was started. Um, so we really all started paying attention pretty closely. COVID then, you know, totally changed our community just like it changed the entire United States and changed the world. Um, but what happened specifically in the Upper West Side 
was that um, the utilization of hotels for homeless shelters. And we didn't just have one hotel utilized, we actually had three and almost 800 mentally ill, chemically addicted individuals were moved within a 10 block radius um, in the Upper West Side. And we have a quite residential neighborhood. It's a lot of families, a lot of senior citizens. Um, and in July, when almost 300 men were moved, um, they were described as being on methadone treatment. Um, and as an anesthesiologist, this, this really did raise a lot of alarm bells for me because I, I do have um, a lot of experience dealing with people with chemical addiction um, who have either recovering of substance abuse and active substance with active, active substance um, issues. And so, you know, this was the impetus to say, okay, I need to get involved. Something is happening to our community that feels um, that it's wrong, that we are seeing this increase um, in safety issues in our community. Our, our politicians are not responding. Many people have been reaching out, but we don't feel that we're, our voices are being heard. So when you walk us through the story, was crime already changing in your neighborhood pre-COVID? Crime was changing pre-COVID for sure. Um, but what we've seen post-COVID has been a pretty dramatic increase. Um, just, I think COVID just kind of uncovered a lot of uh, the issues that we, that we were experiencing. I was reading just in researching you some just random stories. Um, one from... Um, the City Journal, August 9th, 2020, a man doing his part to support the pandemic era economy and urban street life was simply eating dinner outside with his wife at 75th Street at, at 75th Street in Columbus was punched by a stranger. The next day in the afternoon, so midday, a woman exiting the 72nd Street subway station was stabbed by a stranger. In both cases, neither, neither attack was instigated. And what's so interesting about this is a lot of people actually think of New York as this crime-ridden, dangerous city. And it's really not. It's a very pedestrian-heavy, um, it's a busy city, but it's not a city. I, I know many nights and weekends I've spent in the city. I feel very, very safe walking down the streets of New York. But from a lot of my friends and colleagues who live there now, they're saying that the city's truly changed. And you don't feel as safe walking down the streets. In comes COVID where, you know, there's been almost no foot traffic and this infusion of, you're saying, almost up to 800 mentally ill men in local hotels. And obviously it's cause for concern. But what's been so interesting is the response. Are you being called a hero for stepping in? Or is it that you're, you don't have compassion, that you're, um, an Upper West Side snob, and you just want to keep your neighborhood pristine and clean. I mean, what are what has the response been like for you? You know, it's been so interesting because I've lived a very anonymous life in Manhattan. I think a lot of people who live here, you know, are able to walk outside. You go to your local coffee shops and your local grocery stores, um, but that you don't have that suburban um, community, maybe that you would do have when you live in an urban environment. Um, but at the same time, I think this has really forced people to get to know your neighbors because we had to turn to one another and form this organization in response to what we were seeing. And in turn, we were vilified that the answers were simply 
well, you just don't want to see homelessness. And really, from my point of view, not just as a parent, but as a physician, it's that, no, this has nothing to do with homelessness. This is an issue of mental health. This is an issue of crime. We are having needles in our playgrounds. We are having overdoses in our medians. Men are exposing themselves. We have multiple images of masturbation in our, on our landmarks, on our, our historical society steps. We are having, um, just like you said, um, unprovoked assaults. I mean, those were incidents that happened in August. They happened last weekend. We actually just had uh, an individual assaulted on a Thursday morning at 7.30 in the morning. Sunday afternoon, I was the witness of a, of a pretty vicious assault of a, of a robbery that didn't go right. And the four or five individuals actually um, assaulted one of the workers on Columbus Avenue, which is, I mean, people may not know exactly where this is, but on 70th Street, it's a very safe area. I've lived here for seven years. I have never witnessed anything like this. I would, I would never think twice about bringing my two small children around walking or in their strollers. And I was so upset that I actually called my husband to come and walk me home. So this is a, this is a really dramatic change in our community. And what um, the reaction of our politicians is to say that you, um, you don't want this in your backyard, but really is that this shouldn't be happening in anyone's backyard. And I think that's infuriating, by the way. And um, it's a really low blow by the elected officials who are charged with serving the community. Because by the way, throwing up to 300 men in a, in a vacant hotel does nothing for the business economy, but also does nothing for those men who need treatment and oversight and, and help. You know, we talk, as we're reading, you know, kids are seeing addicts shooting up drugs. I mean, is that what you want to see when you're, is that what you want your child to see when you're just walking down the street? Um, witnesses filmed paid sex acts in the streets, incidents yep. that can, um, considering the incapacitated condition of the so-called sex workers or partakers in the sex act were actually assault. And this is what you're just seeing on the street. So for the response to be that you don't have compassion, and you just don't care about the homeless, I think it's disingenuous and offensive. I think what you're really saying and what we're hearing is that this is not the solution and it's a lose-lose. It's a lose-lose for, for those in the Upper West Side and across any major city, people who care about their community, want to invest in their community, want to build their homes, their schools, have their kids play in the playground. And it's also not right to those who need treatment. And it's not a fair statement for the elected officials to make. So what and I, and, I, and I sort of know the answer of this, and this is why I'm so, so intrigued by what you're doing. How have you leveraged Mayor de Blasio and all the elected officials who have been um, somewhat disingenuous in their response to you? So the community has really come together. Um, so the Facebook group has, like you said, is over 15,000 people. And when you have 15,000 voices, it's hard to ignore that because it's not just 15,000, that's 15,000 households. So that really represents such a significant portion of our community. And then there's more than that. I mean, I have conversations with people who are not on the Facebook group. And in, in turn, we've collected photographs, we've collected videos, we've collected so much um, um, objective evidence of this is what is happening in our community. And the media has um, brought light to really what are the problems that are happening here? These are real problems. 
we need to find real solutions. And even though our elected officials don't feel the need to um, uh, to do anything to uh, you know really find these solutions, our community is dedicated to living here, to revitalizing our economy that's been devastated by COVID, and that. The answer is not, well, there's nothing we can do because we know we can solve these, these solutions. We have lived through 9-11. We've lived through the financial crisis in 2009. You know, New York has always been um, a community that knows how to find its way out of problems. And so we just really don't um, abide by the, the, um, the idea that nothing can be done. Like you don't provide you basically don't um, instill one problem with another. COVID cannot be the only um, answer when you have more problems that you've, you've committed to a, a, um, a community. And I, and I think that's such an interesting point. And I'll say there are many polls out now that say that actually the number one concern for average citizens is safety. It's no longer COVID. Do you think it's a fair response? Do you think these elected officials are playing politics or do you think they genuinely feel that throwing, you know, large groups of, of people who need help, but just throwing them into vacant hotels, that this has been a true solution, that it's really in the best interest of those who need treatments and service and it's in the best interest of the neighborhood. But do you think, are they playing politics? I mean, what are they doing? I have to say, I do think a lot of this is playing politics because if the initial um, solution was to de-densify the, um, the cluster shelters, that was in March. But now we're talking about this is October and a lot of um, the relocation that happened in our community was at the end of May. And especially with one of the particular hotel that really is the impetus for this conversation, the Lucerne was at the end of July. And we know that that move had nothing to do with COVID. Those individuals were at another hotel in Hell's Kitchen. And the community there actually reached out to Corey Johnson, who's the speaker of the city council, complained about the same quality of life problems that our communities face. Open drug use, defecation, um, crime. And he had uh, requested through the Department of Homeless Services to have that the individuals at that hotel and the nonprofit relocated um, to another to another place, and I'm not saying that they specifically asked them to be moved to the Upper West Side, but they had them moved, and therefore the problem really was just shifted to the Upper West Side. So um, when we're discussing whether or not COVID, um, the politicians seem to care more about COVID um, or their their own po political will. Um, it really feels that politics seems to be taking uh, the forefront of their of their agenda here. And I, I, this is this is just something I read online, and we all know that um, you can take it with a grain of salt. So I, I don't know if this is real, but in reading about what's been going on specifically in the Upper West Side, and of course across all major cities across America, um, it seems that some municipalities have become extremely um, extreme in sort of their their activism, their positions, and the way that they govern locally. And that could be what's happening in New York. I don't know. Uh, but I've read a lot that, that that seems to be what's happening to the point that local elected officials almost want to, and again, this is just reading online, punish those who seem to have so much wealth. 
and say, you know, this is real life and you need to get a good dose of what real life is and you're not going to be in a bubble. Yes, you're not in a gated community and you shouldn't be in a gated community. I mean, that's an extreme statement and I can't imagine any local municipality would almost want to punish those who are doing well and providing. Um, but I also don't know the answer. I mean, is there any, could there be any truth to that? You've been in those meetings, you've heard local elected officials talk. Is this, is it crazy what I'm seeing and what I'm reading? You know, it's a it's an interesting um, concept about living in a gated community in, in Manhattan because if people wanted to live in gated communities, they certainly wouldn't live in New York City. We obviously don't have walls. We have and we have no backyards. Our backyards are our streets. Um, the Upper West Side has actually always been known to uh, be a welcoming community. We actually rank ninth out of 59th district in terms of shelter beds. Um, in comparison to other um, so-called wealthy communities, uh, we have 1,100 shelter beds compared to the Upper East Side that had 80, and that's um, according to uh, data from September 2019. So that doesn't even take into account the, um, the shelter beds that were uh, moved in since May. Um, so, you know, it, it really is hard to say that um, where the distribution of uh, shelter beds and the um, where services are being withheld or being uh, provided in terms of where wealthy constituents live, um, there is fair share that is uh, exists in New York City, and it exists for a reason because resources are can only go so far. We are very stretched in our community. We have a very densely um, populated community. We have a lot of uh, supportive housing that is in our neighborhood. And we know that we are gonna be experiencing a lot of budget cuts just based on uh, the fiscal uh, projections for the next coming year. So, you know, it's important that we look at all these things um, to make sure that we're not going to be shortchanging anyone who lives in any community. And I think that's so important. And I, you know, and reading again, the posts and, and sort of the spirit behind what you're doing, it's not for a lack of compassion. And, I, and I'm a big advocate that wanting public safety for yourself or your loved one does not equate to a lack of compassion for others. It's it's wanting it for, for me and for you and for, for him and for her and this neighbor and that neighbor in this zip code and in that zip code. And sometimes solutions proposed by local municipalities have to be challenged because if they're political in nature, um, and the, the outcome is not contributing to the health and wellness of safety of those of, of their electorate, it's, our, it's incumbent upon us to do something. And I'm so proud of you for actually doing something. You know, we talk about public safety every day, and we often feel like we're sort of alone in this world talking about these issues. And to couple that with somebody like you who, and, and, and all the many members, now you have, as we said, over 15,000 members, and I read the posts, and I'm very in tune with what what's being shared there's been a lot of love and compassion and outpouring there's been a lot of okay how can we create solutions and you guys have been working towards solutions you've been trying to leverage community members to get involved um talk talk to other people listening about how communities can rally behind identifying a problem and then coming towards solutions yeah um so social media has been such an important part of this because especially um 2020 we are socially distanced. We are not having these large gatherings. Um, 
And, you know, as someone like myself, who really has never been an active member in community activism um, and organizing, um, I really, the first thing I did was start reaching out to our local officials and finding myself not finding answers, not hearing any solutions from them. And so the next thing that I realized, okay, so how do I find like-minded people? And um, there are block associations that exist in, um, in our, our neighborhoods, um, but that really was uh, restricted to only people who live within those geographic regions. Uh, so social media was something that allowed us to find one another and to say, okay, well, these are people who care about this issue that really want to do something and to make change. And that was how the conversation got started where, okay, we see a problem. We are not having our voices heard. We do feel disenfranchised. We do feel that our politicians do not want to see that safety is a priority that we do you know, that really the only expectation that I have of my elected officials is that I can walk my children down the street and not be afraid of having them being harmed or that myself, that I will be harmed. Um, and that's what makes New York so great. And it's that maybe there is um, that fear maybe outside of New York City that there is crime. But, you know, for someone that's lived in New York City, it is a very safe, Place. I mean, we really do. We have one of the best police departments in the entire world, um, anti-terrorism units. I mean, it's something that we're so proud of that's been in since for since I'm a child that has really turned New York City into one of the havens um, that has brought in tourism and um, culture and restaurants that people come to. And we want to make sure that it stays that way. So um, that, that's the conversations that we're having in the Facebook group. And that's why the organization was started, because we really felt it was an important thing for people to have a voice and to, to organize together um, and to then reach out to other areas of New York City who also feel the same way and to have a collaborative effort um, amongst like-minded people around the city. Because I know it's the, that the Upper West Side really just represents a microcosm of what's happening around the entire Manhattan, around the entire New York City, Queens, the Bronx, Brooklyn. I mean, this is not just the Upper West Side. We just represent a very small area that is um, it, that it's happening to. And and again, to the point is, you're not you're not saying that safety needs to stop around the jurisdictional lines of the Upper West Side. You want to see it for all communities across all of Manhattan, and ultimately understand that it should be for every citizen across this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, this isn't something that you and I have ever even talked about, but when you see what's happening and sort of the decisions your local elected officials are making in New York, and we're seeing decisions that local municipalities are making across major cities across this country, you know, the defund police narrative, there's bail reform, there's a lot going on. Um, is this an issue now? Are these issues now that you're starting to like really look at, whereas maybe a year ago or two years ago, you were, they weren't even on your radar? Oh yeah. We talk, we have 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 uh, very long discussions about bail reform. It's a, something that's directly impacted us. We actually um, have had multiple car break-ins um, uh, along Riverside Drive and 77th Street. And um, the, uh, uh, the 24th Precinct um, in our community did catch one of the perpetrators. And he's someone who's arrested 30 times and was has then since been released again and will as out on, on bail because of this new law. 
And so the conversation is, well, what does it take for you, for them to actually be held and to not have another victim? Because um, as, as uh, Commander Yaguchi uh, said, this is not a victimless crime. The person whose car is broken into spends hours in the precinct reporting the crime, going through their insurance, their items are stolen, they feel personally violated. And so this is, that's just one vehicle. I mean, we are, we are experiencing this on such, such a high level here. And when we listen to our elected officials who put these laws into place, they're so tone deaf on to what the actual repercussions are on the average citizen. Um, so we are having these conversations about the larger laws that have been put in that, that they seem to not have, um, have thought about who's going to be impacted by them. Yeah, and it's such a big issue for us. And it's one that I wish I had a louder voice on because we've been saying, you know, across this country, we've had this discussion on misdemeanor bail reform and everybody's agreed. We don't want to hold people who have committed low level one-time offenses, um, you know, hold them where it, it's, it, it, it hurts their ability to get back to work, to get back on their feet. They're going to lose their job. We don't want to create a, a, a negative effect for those people. But there are other situations where, where it is clear that there are people out there that are living a life of crime. They're going to commit this crime. They're going to commit the next crime. You're going to arrest them. You're going to release them because you're going to have compassion on them. And there's this now felony, felony bail reform. And they're going to go right out and commit another crime. And what we're seeing is they're, they're breaking into a vehicle. They're also raping a girl. They're also committing murder, uh, aggravated assault robbery and they're getting arrested and re-released into communities over and over and over again and where do you draw the line it's interesting when people say well there are some victimless crimes like breaking into a, a business and stealing cell phones or breaking into a car that that does, doesn't really hurt somebody but like you point out it actually really does and what's interesting is in our city um, last year just looking at the number of cars that were broken into call it a victimless victimless crime but hundreds and hundreds actually thousands of guns were stolen from those cars. So those are guns out on the street right now. So we've got to be looking and asking questions. Um, this, this movement of local municipalities, changing the lens, being tone deaf, I think is creating great harm for our cities. But what's so great about what you're doing is you mentioned 15,400 members. That represents 15,400 maybe households in each household, you might have one to two voting members. That's enough to change a complete slate in, in, in an election. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and just to the point of um, even the stores that are being uh, robbed, um, you know, we're having a lot of empty storefronts and they're really, there's a, a, a problem in them sort of revitalizing after COVID. Um, so these stores that are being uh, almost assaulted through at night, they have to then pay for the glass to be um, uh, put back up, uh, whatever inventory is being stolen. I mean, this is uh, and and there's and their workers don't feel safe coming into work the the next day. So it's I mean this is this is a real problem, especially in our community. Um, and so, you know, we're really advocating for the police to, uh, to, to, to try and um, have more presence on the street. But something that has been done, especially in our communities, that they've taken plainclothes officers off of the, off right. of the streets. And so um, that has, has contributed, I think, to part of these um, so-called victimless crimes because they're, they're, not, they're no longer um, canvassing the neighborhood. 
I always say, when did we lose the ability to have two conversations at once? You know, we can talk about police reform, which is so necessary, without removing plainclothes officers, defunding. I think in New York, they're looking at a billion dollars, maybe that's passed from NYPD, um, without making all law enforcement bad and, and making it impossible for them to work, to swinging the pendulum, to having this completely irresponsible bail reform, at least on the felony side, to moving people who need services into just regular communities where they're not only hurting themselves, but they're hurting those who are trying to make a living. When did we lose the ability to have reasonable, balanced conversations? And that was the whole point of this podcast and, and your show and, and this show and watching what you're doing has inspired me and, and wanting to have this conversation with you and hoping that other people across the city will tune in and see what you're doing. I know your group is a closed group, but people can read about you. Um, they can see a lot of the stories you're doing. Are you hoping, what are you hoping for in New York? And then are you hoping for anything across the country or are you focused mainly in your area? So we actually have been reached out um, to by, um, we've reached, We've been re, um, approached by other groups, um, one group in Boston in particular, that's also having um, uh, problems in their community with um, uh, sort of shelter individuals that the uh, politicians have, have I, in their view, have abandoned their concerns with increased drug dealing, increased drug use, increased crime, um, and they have sort of seen us as a model, as a community that's organized and has pushed back and said that, no, it is not okay to just um, let these, these crimes go, you know, without uh, question, without having any repercussions, and that, you know, the degradation of the neighborhood has, has an impact on everybody. And it doesn't just, um, it, it's not okay just because it's a pandemic. It's not okay just because we have um, economic recession. You know, we have to, you know, address all of these problems. And for people who are, you know, trying to make a living, trying to go to work, trying to use public transportation, this impacts us all. So um, it really did, uh, it felt like we, we do have a, a larger reach on a national level that, you know, this conversation is not just happening in our community. It's not just happening in New York. It is happening all over the country. Um, and that we, we do need to, you know, extend it and be able to have that bilateral conversation like you were saying, because there is a little bit um, of a sense that you are not allowed to, um, to discuss hard topics that involve um, mental health or drug addiction or crime um, in a rational way or in a reasonable way um, that um, because of some uh, political pressure or, um, you know, whether or not it's, um, considered uh, on vogue, I guess. I mean, that statement right there, I can't even tell you sort of the feelings it elicits in me um, and in the work that we're trying to do, the need to have important conversations in a graceful manner, saying that we can have two conversations at once. And, you know, we want to ensure the safety of not just the Upper West Side, of every community across this country. We want to pour in resources where they're needed. We want to treat those with mental health issues, with drug addiction, um, with whatever the issue might be, we want to have compassion, uh, but we've also, we must demand better. And it, it frightens me when I kind of take a step back to look at the movement on bail reform and where we were way before COVID ever started and the coupling of, of misdemeanor bail reform with felony bail reform, with this defund police narrative across the country, with 
punishing anybody that asks questions about it, with categorizing them in the most horrific way. You know, we've, we're, we're moving away from it and we're encouraging people to move away from it, to follow your lead, to look at what you're doing in, in, in New York, Boston, and, and other cities across America. Where can people go to follow you um, if they want more information about what you're doing? So we, we do have a website, um, westsideco.org. Um, and we're always happy to have conversations with people. Um, we're on social media um, at westsideco.org, um, underscore.org. And um, I think it's important that we all just continue to use our voices because we're stronger together. I think that, you know, what's empowered me as someone who, like I said, who's always really not taken a lead per se in uh, p political activities or community organizing um, is that safety is the priority in my mind. And when we don't, and we aren't allowed to have conversations about safety, then we sort of lose our way as a, as a society. And um, that's where we have to bring the, the narrative back. Um, we are going to need safety to lead us for economic recovery. And if people don't feel safe, they're not gonna wanna stay in communities. Um, so that's really gonna be the best way for us all to heal, um, especially like post um, something that's been so traumatic like COVID and, um, and we are stronger together. We're stronger as numbers. And um, if it's helpful that, you know, people like myself and um, other people in our leadership who feel that it's okay to say these things out loud, I'm, I guess I'm happy to put myself out there and do it um, because I want my children to grow up in a, in a world where, you know, things that are important, it's important to say it and it's important to lead by example. So, um, and I want them to grow up in a safe community. And, and that I do this because of my, of my children. It's, it's, you know, I, I think I will be okay. I've, you know, managed to get through life so far, but I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and my, my whole world is about them. And it's the world that I'm leading them into. And I want them to be in a safe world where we have dialogue and where your, your opinion is allowed to be expressed. And those are really, really critical things for me. And, and I think, Dr. Martin, you've been doing it in grace and compassion. And again, we support the work you're doing. You know, we yeah. want your kids to grow up in a safe neighborhood. We want our kids to. And we want every other three and five-year-old across this country to grow up in health and safety and to work together um, to ensure that for all by having important conversations and letting local municipalities know that we will come together um, to ensure that that's given to our communities. So we thank you for being a champion. We wish you guys the most health and safety in New York. Uh, 2020 go away with COVID. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> and we will see you. We'll be following what you're doing and, and we'll keep up and keep in touch. So we thank you so much for being on the podcast and we'll catch yeah. you guys all next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Hi, everybody. Thank you for watching my sit down with Dr. Megan Martin. I have two, just two takeaways from today's conversation. The first is the, is the power of the community. Dr. Martin, again, a mom of two really got involved along with 15,400 other New Yorkers who want to see a change in their community and are doing something about it. Um, I think that's inspiring for all of us across America. But the second is that public safety can be something we wish for in our communities. And it it doesn't go against having a heart of compassion. There's this narrative that those of us who want safety do not have compassion for others, and it's simply not true. We want a safe community for ourselves, for our kids, for our homes, for our neighborhoods, but we also want that for you, wherever you might be. And we want to work together to ensure the health and wellness of all and the safety for everyone, no matter where they live. So we thank you for tuning in and we hope that you'll be um, inspired and encouraged to get involved. Thanks again. If you missed anything from the show, check out the show notes at thebalancevoicepodcast.com. This episode was edited and mixed by the team at Real News PR. Our executive producer is Sydney Zyker. Our advising producer is Katie Myers. Our media and quality assurance director is Tanya Cruz. And finally, our creative design director is Elizabeth McChesney. To find out more information about Crime Stoppers of Houston or to get involved with our prevention programming, please visit us at crime-stoppers.org. You can find us on Instagram at The Balanced Voice Podcast, and you can find me online at The Run Your Report.